0: I'm really enjoying this season of being back. Every moment we get to do as a family is just a little bit more of a privilege. It's that much more special because we haven't done it for so long. And uh, it's just cool to be here. And and I, I think I'm preaching my fifth week in a row, which I don't think I'd have done in a long time. But in this season of kind of coming back and just enjoying shepherding and leading our community into this new season, it's been a real privilege and joy. And one of the things we've been doing for the last few weeks is we've been journeying through the book of Mark, and we taking a break this morning, and we looking at this topic of human beings, that God made us with an identity, that human beings have an identity. Even if you like it or not, whether you say you have an identity or not, you have one. The definition of an identity uh, it d- sort of depends. The Cambridge English Dictionary simply says, Who a person is. Who a person is. But but an identity is also who a person understands themselves to be. And who you understand yourself to be, whether you like it or not, is going to determine how you behave. How you think about the world, how you feel, your levels of anger, uh, excitement, disappointment, joy, your expectations for the future are all dependent, all held in who you Understand yourself to be, how you view yourself, your personal identity. And it's wrapped up in Scripture, by the way. And much of Genesis chapter 1 through 3, which is the creation account, is really God bestowing on the people of God an identity. He's helping them to understand where they came from, who they are, what this world was made for, how they fit into this broken and complex world. That's basically what the whole of Genesis 1 through 3 is all about, is it's giving the people of Israel an identity. Your identity shapes how you behave, who you are, and you have one. We all have one. You just can't escape it. We're humans. And our identity is actually immensely relational because we're uh, uh, unavoidably relational people. We just live relationally. Even if you try to be a hermit, it's a relational decision. You try to uh, disconnect from the world, you're still relational by virtue of the fact that you're trying to avoid relationships. We are relational. And so our identities are relational. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles, open up with me. And we're in verse 38, and this is a story of two sisters who basically have differing understandings of their own identity. They, they, they have differing ways of viewing themselves. And basically, if you pick up this, one sister who fights for an identity to be achieved, and there's another sister who lives with an identity that she has received, One sister works hard to earn this identity. Another sister rests in an identity she's given. And I want you to pick up this interplay because this story is told by Luke because he's trying to help us understand that there are kind of two types of humans that can exist. Those who are learning and fighting for an identity that they can achieve and those that God calls to live in an identity received. And you'll pick up the difference. And it is fairly challenging, to be honest with you, as you go through this text. And so let's read it. I'll pray, and then I'm going to do a brief teaching on it, and then we'll go. So here it goes. Luke 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We thank you for your word. And we pray that as we look at this, we would be humble to learn what we need to learn, to ignore that which is not taught from you by your spirit, but God, to embrace that which you are saying to us so that we can live in the peace and the presence that you would have us live in. It's no secret that Mary is the prototype here. She's the one we're trying to learn from. I pray that you would coach us into a kind of Mary like experience where we as a people who tend to rush our way through life, busy, 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 would take something from the spirit and the heart of Mary today to be able to be those who can be present and enjoy a peace in a crazy frenetic world. Teach us this morning with the help of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is actually a a funny and a tragic story all at the same time. I mean, for 2,000 years in sacred scripture that has been kept and has been canonized for all this time, Martha is famous for making hot bread and keeping a clean house. How Tragic is that? Imagine you could be famous for something. You had Jesus in your home, and the one thing that you are remembered for is that you had a clean house, you had some hot food, and everybody said, Thanks for having us. How tragic! And, and that should kind of, kind of wake us up a little because it's trying to dig at our priorities and the stuff we value and the busyness of our lives and the priorities we face because that's what Martha has been remembered for. There are Marthas all over the world and it's used as a joke so often, stop being a Martha. She is famous for having the very son of God in her home and being more worried about the heat and temperature of her food than she is about the God God right in front of her. It's a real story. It's trying to illustrate what we are prone to all being like, that we are all people who prefer doing than being. We prefer accomplishing and getting something done rather than being the kind of people who find our identity from the inside. The Martha that we pick up here, she's, in verse 41, she's distracted. She's always looking out, doing stuff. She's grumpy. She says in verse 40, don't you care? She's cynical. Verse 40 again, don't you care? She's jealous. Tell her to help me, says verse 41, 40 again. Uh, verse 41, she's annoyable. How many of us are annoyable? Easily annoyed by people. Demanding. Again, she's, she's always looking at how she could get people to, to be better. She reads the news and she just always thinks that they could be doing more. This country, this, that. Uh, there's just always a sense of demanding. It could always be better. She's comparative. Tell her to help me. Look what I'm doing. Look what she's not doing. This is, a, this is the kind of spirit that's brewing inside of her. This comparative, demanding, annoyable, jealous, cynical spirit. But here's the scary part. It's veneered in a person who looks a lot like many of us. How are you doing, Martha? Oh, I'm very busy. I'm hosting some amazing people in my home. I'm, I'm really proactive. No one else wanted to host them, so I chose to. She's busy, hospitable, proactive. She's productive. She's making stuff. She's effective. She's appropriate. She's doing all the right stuff at the right time. Martha was probably the head, the head girl of Bethany High. Let me tell you, she was the girl who got it done. She wasn't a nerdy person nobody wanted to hang out with. She was a proper get goer doer person. But sadly, she wasn't present and she wasn't peaceful. Something we all so badly want. She wasn't present. She wasn't peaceful. She probably spent a lot of her time on social media. She probably spent a lot of her time going, I wish I could have that, not knowing that she was feeling current to the world, but actually losing peace inside of her soul, chasing after an illusion of something she could do better and achieve and get an identity that the world goes, look at Martha, she's amazing. She's chasing, she's chasing, she's chasing, she's doing so much stuff. And then there's Mary. And by the way, Mary's not doing nothing here. You see, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's listening to his teaching. She's engaging with Jesus. So this is not a a story of one person who does a lot and another person who does nothing, and Jesus going, no, it's cool, just do nothing. You know, the slobs of this world, that's what it's all about. She's actually breaking from massive traditional norms. She's pushing away from the traditional reality that the woman would be preparing the food. The woman would be uh, making sure that the hospitality is sorted so that the men can do the teaching stuff, can actually, you know, make sure that doctrine is sorted. But she breaks from the norm and she moves into the room and she sits at Jesus' feet because she wants to know what he's like. And she knows that there is something going on in planet Earth right now that everything else should stop. Every other priority should be changed and shifted so that this thing that is happening right now can be regarded, can be made sense of, can be enjoyed, can be savored, can be taken hold of. And it's so funny how we can find ourselves. I'm 37 years old, and there's things I thought I would have dealt with when I'm 20 but I've still got stuff that keeps following because in some ways the Martha in me just keeps doing, doing, doing. Somewhere subconsciously, I'm trying to achieve an identity when actually there is something in us that knows that we were made to be before we meant to do. And Mary gets it. She understands that it's going to cost her some reputation. What is this woman doing in this lounge? She should be in the kitchen according to tradition and culture. What is she doing listening to teaching? This is a men's environment. She's not doing nothing. She's doing the stuff that matters most. And Jesus looks at her and he goes, that is best. I hope we're starting to filter our lives and the priorities of our lives and the stuff that we're in. Because we live in a world that is a meritocracy. You know what a meritocracy it is? A meritocracy is basically we live in a world where you earn your identity based on what you achieve. You work hard, you get more. You don't work hard, you don't get. And so we keep working for an identity achieved. Career, cash, companion. We work for all of those and we try to show them and find worth in them. That's basically how we work in our society. And it's the water we swim in. Whether you like it or not, the moment you switch on your TV, read the news, or chat to someone, that's what we have as the backdrop for our lives. It's called a meritocracy. Martha was not a terrible person. She would have been a lovely person to hang out with, and she would have hosted Who's Coming to Brian Next Week? And we would have all said, What an amazing host. Thank you, Martha. And some of you are going to host, and we're going to love you for it. But are you going to host because you're trying to get an identity achieved or because you've already got one received? Because there's something in you that you already understand is more valuable than people saying at the end of the breath, thank you. Beautiful home, great kids, great life, great whatever. You're doing so well. Mary's engaging her heart and her mind. She's prioritizing being over doing. Look at these three things. Next slide. She's prioritizing being before doing. She's prioritizing worship before work. She's prioritizing wow before how. Being before doing is the fact that we are all meant to, primarily as humans, have an internal locus of control. I'll explain that in a bit. She's prioritizing worship in that she's seeing something glorious before she's doing something important. We often want to do something important and then we get to go, wow, look at me or look at this thing. But actually, as humans, we're meant to see the beauty and respond accordingly. We're meant to see God and then go into the world. We're meant to have a time up on the mountain, as we saw in Mark, and then come out of that space of going, I'm loved. I'm cared for. I am looked after, and because of that, I move into the world with confidence. It's how we all work. If we don't get that, if we work from the outside in, we become very difficult people to be around. Just ask your spouse not easy being around a person who lives trying to find an identity achieved, perpetually searching for some way to go, you're valid, you're important, you're good, whether it's a good dad, a good friend, a good colleague, a good uh, work companion, whatever it may be. It doesn't deliver, and it leaves us very tired. I'm not anti-work. I think we're all going to work hard in our lives, and there's nothing wrong with working hard. God created it, and we will work being a, a, a having a career, being a parent, being a friend. Life is work. But where do we work from? What space inside of us do we work from? Are we working to get something? Or are we working from a place of peace and presence because we've already got it? That's why Jesus commends her and says, well done. Because you're getting something, Mary, that's going to help you to walk into the world with an internal locus of control. You see, there's two kinds of, if you speak to psychologists, I'm still learning all this stuff, but there's two ways to view the world. If you have an external locus of control, this is how it works. All your circumstances shape your experience of life. So if you're having a great time and your kids are behaving well and you take them into public and they actually make you feel great, you go, life is great. Or if your bank balance is in a good space, you're in a good space. If it's not in a good space, you're down. If you're in good relationship with your colleagues at work, you're feeling great. If it's getting a bit awkward, you feel down. You've got an external locus of control. Uh, You're meant to, as a healthy human being, have an internal locus of control. And, And to be honest, this is where Christianity comes into its own because that's what God understands best about us humans is that we're meant to find inside... This strength. But you know, apart from God, you can't do it. It's it's impossible. An internal locus of control says, you know what? The bank balance isn't what I want. And this person didn't say what I hoped they'd say about me. And uh, this uh, work situation hasn't worked out how I'd hoped. But you know what? I'm actually loved already. And and I know one who provides, and I know one who cares, and he's already shown me his deep undying love, and that he died for me, so I walk into the world, and you know the most important thing for me, personally as a human, is that I know that his baptism was my baptism. And when he got baptized, he came out of the water, and this father's voice said over him, you're my son, whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. And so whether I've had a good day or a bad day, I walk into the world going, I'm his son, Whom he loves, with whom I'm well pleased. And nothing I can do, if I'm doing faith right, nothing good I can do and nothing bad I can do can change the internal locus of control because inside of me, I have a word that's spoken that will far transcend any of the good or the bad situations that I'm facing. Mary is able to enjoy peace and presence, something all of us want I so badly want to be better at being present to people, present to God, not distracted by all sorts. Because she's receiving in super abundance what she could never achieve in all of her doing. Super abundance. She's getting at the feet of Jesus what she could never get, fixing up the best meal, having millions of people say, you are the most wonderful person ever. She sits at the feet of Jesus and she gets the facts. Maybe she gets the fact that she's more sinful than she first thought, but she gets this fact as well. She's more loved than she ever dreamt. And when she juxtaposes that, she goes, I'm humbled, but I'm empowered with great confidence. I'm broken, but I'm loved. And into that comes a person who can be both humble and confident. And this journey of identity is us juxtaposing the fact that nobody wants to just be confident and arrogant, and nobody just wants to be humble and pup. We're called as followers of Jesus to have a beautiful balance of humility and confidence, all living inside of one person, because Jesus comes to coach us into humility and confidence. Humility and confidence, two pedals of the bicycle that I, in my experience, know that only the gospel can provide. Only in the death of Jesus and yet the beautiful resurrection of Christ can you fit into one experience humility and confidence something all of us so badly want. And Jesus provides for Mary this life of presence, present to God, not rushing, not like Martha who's doing so much stuff and yet she doesn't even know that God is in her home. Isn't that a scary thought? It's Probably one of my, my healthy fears that I have is that I could live on God's earth and do so much stuff Honestly, I could lead a church and we could plant this beautiful community that I love and I know God loves, and I might still not be present to God. Can do everything, we can do so much stuff, but not know that God is in the house because we're so busy doing, and we're so busy checking social media and checking what's happening in our lives and WhatsApping people, and I love all those things, but they can't be what makes us us. It's in our being. It's in our being with God that we present to him. We, we present to ourselves as well, by the way. How many of us just spin through life and we pretend there's nothing going on? We pretend we don't feel sad when we actually are, and it's okay. We pretend we don't feel hurt when we really are. And so all of those emotions just get lumped into a thing called anger if you're a guy, and probably sadness if you're a girl. Excuse my stereotypes. But that's often the case. And we go, I don't know why I'm sad, but I am. I don't know why I'm angry, but I am. But you know why? It's because you haven't been present to yourself because you run so fast doing that you don't have time to be. And when you can be... You can actually realize that God will help you if you're hurt or angry or disappointed or rejected or lonely or whatever it is that humans feel that none of us get exempt from. We all have them. And in that space, we get to be present to God, to ourselves, and then present to others. Probably my next fear is that I raise a bunch of children that I love so much But I spend more time thinking about the next adventure than the one that is right in front of me. If you've got a child, if you've got people around you, how are you doing at being present to the people that you're speaking to, to the people that you're engaging with? Can you listen and then uh, listen more than you speak and and be present to what they're saying and who they are? I want to be better at this. This is what Mary would have walked out with because she had all her priorities reset. And the other one is peace. Not just presence, but peace. Peace before God. That ability to shake off that ongoing guilt that follows us everywhere we go. Why? Because we've seen Jesus in all his grace. If you don't get present with Jesus, you don't get the experience of his peace. Because our subconscious keeps going. If we leave it to its own devices, it says you're not doing enough and you're not good enough. And unless you get time with Jesus and you do what Mary does, you live with a nagging monkey on the back that says, not enough, haven't done enough, aren't loved enough. And we carry that monkey on our backs everywhere we go. And we don't experience peace before God. And we struggle to experience peace in ourselves until we slow down. It's terrifying, by the way. What do you think Mary felt like? That moment she goes, (sighs) whew. Social expectation, go to kitchen, start preparing food, do what I've been doing all my life and have been indoctrinated to do, but Jesus is here. I must go. Some of us this morning, you know you need to go. You need to change some lifestyle habits. You need to change your own thinking. The Bible says when you change your thinking or your behavior, it's called repentance. It's simply to go, I've been doing all this stuff, but I've got to change to be so that I can actually enjoy God again. So I can see that I'm in His world, in His creation, so that I can once again be present to Him, to others. I can have peace maybe for the first time in years. And just let him speak, and you're going to find that as you let him speak and you do slow down, he's kinder than you think. He's more gentle than you expect, and he's more empowering than you could have ever imagined. And you walk out of that wanting to be slower. This week I've been doing everything I can to leave this thing far away. I realized that I, since coming back to church, have been bound. And it's so amazing how you pick up this thing and you, you, you message someone because you've got something to plan. And 15 minutes later, you're stuck and you wonder, what am I doing staring at Instagram right now? I came here to message Tashas about worship on Sunday. And here I am 20 minutes later staring at this and I'm not present to the people in the room. you've got to parent your phone. You've got to parent yourself sometimes to put this thing away, put it to bed, leave it behind so that you can be present, so that we can have some kind of peace in our world. Our distraction in our lives is immense. I've got three very simple things, an invitation, a provocation, and an exhortation. Invitation, stick with us over the next three weeks. We're going to go deeper into the stuff of identity. We're going to look into a biblical understanding of the kind of identity that God gives us. The beautiful affirmation that we are children of God and the amazing fact that we are also servants in his kingdom. That that's what makes us humble and confident, humble and confident the whole time. Second one is a provocation. What about if you start, institute in your life a Sabbath, a day of rest. I say this because so many of us go, yeah, I want that stuff. I want peace. I want presence. But what are you going to do in your life to change it? There's so many things you could do. My challenge to you today is go, what if you put one 24-hour period aside where you say this, no laboring, no screens, Unless it's a family time to watch a movie where you switch it on, watch the movie, eat popcorn, celebrate the joyful story of life and God, and you switch it off because you like the creative story. But you put your phones away. Nothing to, to reshape your identity. The, the word Sabbath comes from the word Shabbat, which means to delight, to, to rest and to delight. What if you took 24 hours? We do this on a Friday evening through to a Saturday afternoon, basically from four till four. That's how it works. We do it badly sometimes. We do it well other times. And we simply do this on a Friday afternoon. We put our phones down. We light some candles. We light a fire. We usually bribe burgers, and we sit around together, and we talk, and we do our best to do something fun. We often end up dancing in the garden or doing something crazy that just helps us be present and delight and have fun together. We encourage our kids to sleep in on a Saturday morning. We try to keep our Saturday mornings free from activity. We're not in the school sports stage. We, we get it. It's not always simple. The, the point is, is that, one, that day works for us. And we go to the beach and we enjoy time together as a family. We invite other families to do it together, but we keep our phones as far away as we can and we do everything we can to not attach ourselves to the work we have been doing through the week. No messages, no contact with people. I feel emotional because I know how much this stuff means to us. How much our work lives just follow us around and our identities are shaped by our doing. What if you wanted to just do that this week? Set in a Sabbath. And set it in and start to study Sabbath. Guys like Peter Schizero, John Marcoma, they've got great writings. You just go read it. You get it for free on, on the web. And just learn, what does Sabbath rest really look like? And you'll see that you start to feel a little naked your first few Sabbaths. You're like, huh, no phone? But that thing tells me what to do with my life. N- no work calls? No, no work calls. You tell your no. But that's what makes me feel important and needed. Ah, oh, That's the point. That's what it's all about, is a Sabbath, to disconnect from the identity that you've been shaping, to find it in him. Third and final thought is this. Personally pursue deeper understanding of your identity in Jesus. It's about you searching for this. We live in a spoon-feeder culture, and we are going to do a journey together, and we are going to help each other find identity. But there's nothing like a hungry soul in you to say, I want this thing. If you want to grow, it's because you want to grow and start to study scriptures. Maybe start in the second half of Romans chapter 8 and see what God says about his people and his children and start to look at that and let those words come into you as if you're sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary and start to ask God, what do you say about me? What does it say about who I am and what I've got to offer the world and how much you love me and, and what this world really means? Hebrews 4 says, strive to enter into the rest that he offers us. Isn't that a bit of a contradiction? Strive to enter into rest. It's about leaving all the complex stuff in our culture and striving to find the rest of, in the gospel. It's Mary's leaving the temptation to go work in the kitchen to be before Jesus. It's your temptation to just keep the phone in the pocket and put it down. It's your temptation to take that call when you know it could be answered on Monday. It's your temptation to check the emails when you know it's all going to be fine. Your soul needs something more, like Mary understood. Your soul needs to know the gospel truth, that you are loved before you've done a thing. I'll land with a story. Maybe the band can come join us up here. Yesterday, we go to the dads and kids moment, and it was real fun. And the story's going to make me look good, but it's at the risk of telling a good story, I'm going to do it. But we have this uh, all these competitions. There's a putting competition. My family lost horribly. The next one was a kicking competition. You know, like uh, Joel Stransky stuff. And we um, got this kicking competition, and my girls, three girls, seven, five, three, couldn't be bothered with the kicking competition. They were looking for fish in the lake at Greenpoint Park and doing all sorts of fun stuff. But I say, girls, it's our turn. Come. So the Two of them say, no, Dad, we're not interested. One, Chloe comes and at least decides she's going to watch me. So I've got someone who at least watches. But this—it must have been a huge gust of wind that came behind me. But anyway, I strike this ball, and it just sails. And lo and behold, I win the competition. It's like terrible. The pastor must never win the church events. But anyway, it happened this time. So I win this thing, and it's amazing. There's a little prize-giving. Shane and Mike do a great prize-giving and they say to the Hanzas, "You win." And I stand there, and I didn't actually listen too well. And my three girls run up to the front, three bags of M and M's, none for me, three for them. And they come back and they're like, "Yes, we won, Dad." I'm like, "What did you win? The kicking competition?" You're like, "No, you didn't." That's the gospel. You did nothing, and you got it all. We weren't even alive when Jesus lived for us and died for us and rose again. And yet he did it for us so that we can stand loved nonetheless. And we got all the M&Ms and the feast before us and we did nothing. You're beloved. You're cared for, you're thought of, you're you're fathered by a God who will father you better than anyone ever could. You have words of care and affirmation over you that you couldn't dream of. Get into the scriptures, get at Jesus' feet and find out who you are in him. Put this thing down for a while and let him love you. Whatever you need to put down, switch the TV off for a day and let him love you. Stop working for a day and let him love you. And then make that a daily habit and find lots and lots of ways because he loves you. And he will start to take the sin out gently, sometimes more vigorously, but because he loves you, because he cares. And that's locus of control that's been so set in all your environments will start to come inside. And you'll start to walk into the world with confidence and humility. Let's pray. Let's stand. Jesus, you love us. Martha looked so impressive to the world, but she had nothing on Mary. Courageous, brave, faithful to just do what was best. Some here right now, you're coming to Jesus for the first time. I just can feel in my heart you're coming to Jesus for the first time and you... You're saying, yes, I need to follow. I'm, I'm, I need help. I need the peace. I need that presence. The scriptures just say, turn. Turn away from your life of you being in control. That's what the scriptures call sin. You're, you're leading your own life. L- leave that stuff. Stop it. It's not helping you. And trust in Jesus. And you do that, usually starts with a prayer of confession in your mouth where you say, under your breath or in your heart, Jesus, I trust you. I'm done running. I'm done running the show and I'm done running away. As you do that, he he takes the smallest gap of faith and he comes to walk with you. And we'll walk with you. We'll help you to find and enjoy Jesus as the months and years go by. To be more present and to find his peace and to love the world the way he calls us to love the world. Jesus, for each of us, we pray that you would help us to be a people present to you and present to others. Knowing that we've got peace with you and we've got peace in our souls because of you. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that we get the feast without lifting a finger. We are before we do a thing. We get the M&Ms and we never kick the ball. And we're so grateful for that. As we sing, we just enjoy that together. In Jesus' name.